Right, well, good morning. And uh, as we continue in our time of worship, uh, we just got to chance to sing and to believe the Word of God. And uh, we're going to now turn our attention to His Word and ask Him to uh, pour out His Spirit on us, to visit us here so that we could understand His Word, uh, so that we can believe it. Uh, as you know, apart from God's intervention, apart from His speaking to us, nobody would ever understand His Word. Nobody would believe it. We wouldn't continue to trust it. And so, uh, and for just a few moments here, would you pray with me? Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, um, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us in our understanding. We're going to be looking in the book of Ruth today, the book of Ruth. So I want to do something a little different. I'm going to spend a few moments just quiet. You can pray. Pray for the Lord to speak to you. Not me, uh, but the Lord. And uh, pray for him to speak to somebody who's around you. Now, you don't have to embarrass them by looking around. uh, But you know other people in the congregation. Ask the Lord to visit them and speak to them. So you pray, and in just a few moments here, I'll voice a prayer for us all. Father of all mercies, grace and love, peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, a God that's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's you that we worship. It's you that we long for. This morning as we turn to your word. We're ready to be submissive. We're ready to call upon you, God, because you know in our frailty and in our, just in in, in our own self, we cannot rightly understand you. We, We will never stand amazed in the presence of our King unless you do a work in our hearts, and so we pray that you would do that today as we turn to your word. Would you correct us and train us? Would you encourage us for our good and for Jesus' name's sake? And we all said, amen. So in the book of Ruth, uh, if you didn't bring a copy of the scriptures, you can find a, a, a pew Bible somewhere around you. We'll be on page 251. I want to invite you to make your way there. And I want to share a quote with you. Listen to this quote about hunger. It says, no fear can stand up to hunger. No patience can wear it out. Disgust simply does not exist where hunger is. They are all less than chaff in a breeze. This is a quote from Heart of Darkness a short story from 1902 by Joseph Conrad. He's writing about his journey and his experience on a river steamboat in the heart of Africa, Congo. He deliberately traveled to Africa in order to experience hunger and corruption and other evils and what he called the darkness in himself. When we face trials in this life, 
they tend to do just that thing. They tend to expose the heart of darkness within each of us. Maybe you've heard the old proverb, uh, affliction is a good man's shining time. What that means is that any of us can look calm. Any of us can look composed when life is going well. Oh, but let affliction come. Let persecution come. Let the trials of life come, and then we will see what we really serve or whom we really serve. And as you know, in this life, we experience hunger and poverty. We experience loneliness and shame and guilt. We experience faltering marriages and broken families and crumbling societies. But as Christians, we know the trial of all trials. The trial of all trials isn't something that's outside of us, but rather it's something that's inside of us. It lies in our struggle with our own sin. This is the number one trial. And this morning, my aim in preaching through the book of Ruth, and I'm going to preach through the book of Ruth, it's an overview sermon, a uh, 30,000-foot view sermon, and it's an incredibly beautiful story. And despite uh, the misguided uh, uh, reputation for being a a sanctified romance book fit only for ladies' Bible studies, this is a wonderful story that is good for the whole congregation and has tremendous blessing. It's a deep story, a story of tragedy and darkness and suspense, a story of drama and romance. Perhaps you've read it before. And maybe you even read it as you were thinking about worship today. As many of you know, Ruth is a historical book. It's accounting uh, the life of God's people. It's also a theological prelude to King David, most likely written uh, in the early part of his reign in the 11th century B.C. And it details for us, if somebody asked you, what's the book of Ruth really about in the grand scheme, the overarching story of Scripture, it details for us how the Lord is preparing His people to transition away from the chaos of their self-centered rule to the good rule of King David, who is foreshadowing the true King, Jesus Christ. So you see, friends, Ruth is a story, but it's about a much greater story. It's a tale of how God is redeeming a people for himself, bringing them from darkness, the darkness of despair to delight, bringing them from hurt to hope, from completely empty to abundantly full. This is an epic story of redemption. Redemption is God's story. It's why we gather here in this place week after week to remember, to treasure the story of redemption. And if you think that this is just part of the story, I want to share with you that it dominates, this theme of redemption dominates the Scripture. Strictly speaking, in the Bible, we can find creation, God created and called it good, in just two chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Then we see the fall of man in uh, one chapter. Genesis chapter 3. 
We see the consummation of all things and God restoring all things in two chapters. Revelation 21 and 22. But it's the other 1,184 chapters of the Bible that are about redemption. About God's work of saving through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we gather and we say, we're people of the book. We want to study the book. Our message is one of redemption. For those of you with us this morning uh, who are not Christians, first, can I say thank you for joining us? We truly are glad that you are here. We want you to be here. We, don't, we believe there's no better place than for you to sit underneath the Word of God. And if you're asking, what is this Christian life all about? What, what, what is this? Why do they even get together and sing? What is it about? I think we're safe when we can summarize with Kevin DeYoung that Christianity is chiefly, firstly, ultimately, and amazingly about God's gracious initiative to save sinful human beings. In other words, being a Christian is recognizing first and foremost that you need redemption, that you need to be saved, and then it's living your life in response to that by trusting in God's grace and His mercy to provide for you that redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we dig into this story of Ruth, this is where we're at. We're going to see a glimpse through the whole book of God's plan of redemption. We're going to see that in two different scenes. Let's pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Here it is with a man named Elimelech along with his wife Naomi and their two sons. Follow along as I read. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chelon. They were Ephorites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chelon died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The story starts off with, in the days when the judges ruled. These are the days that they're living in. And it doesn't take us very much time to figure out what that means. All you need to do is flip back one page to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, Look at verse 25. It says, In those days, these are the same days, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if we had time to walk through the book of Judges, we'd notice that these days, when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, they were bleak days. They were days uh, filled with pain and suffering. They were days of unfaithfulness to God. And you see, the story of redemption is set against the backdrop of this ever-expanding pain and suffering and unfaithfulness to God. And God promised His people that if they lived this way, if they, would be, if they were disobedient, that He would send a famine in the land. Deuteronomy 28 tells us that. And that's exactly what He did. And so here we have this man, Elimelech, instead of, instead of repenting, 
Instead of leading his family to repentance, he does something else. He tries to avoid the real heart issue and only deal with the hunger issue by addressing that physical problem. And so, therefore, he and his wife and his two sons, they leave their home. They disobey God and they go to um, Moab. They left Bethlehem, which ironically means the house of bread, and there was no food, and they go sojourn in the foreign land of Moab. Now, this took some, some thinking on his part, but Moab would not be the place that the Israelites would, would have enjoyed, would have liked. For, for Israel, going to Moab would bring up several things. First, it would remind them of the incestuous relationship between uh, Lot and his older daughter. In Genesis 19, we see that. And then it would remind them uh, that they hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. It would also remind them of the women that had been stumbling blocks to Israel in the wilderness that was trying to seduce them to worship false gods in Numbers 25. Church, this isn't a place that you want to go raise a godly family, sounds like. But I want you to see, as, you, as, as in this time here, when it illuminates this eventual deliverance of God. We're going to see that in a moment. The deliverance of God. But I don't want you to miss this fact that Elimelech's disobedience also highlights God's sovereignty over sin. If, you hadn't, uh, if he hadn't taken his family and left Israel, there would be no marriage to Ruth, no reason for her to follow Naomi back, and eventually uh, she would never have married Boaz. In God's providence, he uses sin and evil for good purposes. You remember the story of Joseph? His brothers threw him in a well, left him there. Genesis 50, verse 20. And he says, what you intended for evil, what? God intended for good. I don't know what's going on in your life per se, But I do know in all of our struggles with sin, God is sovereign over every one of those. God is working behind the scenes, if you were. I like how Pastor Jonathan Rourke says of Ruth, he says, Sweet expressions of grace in the face of weakness that are beautifully woven between scenes of judgment and sin. Or sin and judgment. So you have this beautifully woven story here of God's sweet graces in the midst of Elimelech and his family's disobedience. God is using those. So can I speak to those families here who are hurting and dealing with the consequences of family sin and struggling there? I pray that you find tremendous hope in that God uh, uses and redeems those choices and he brings about his eternal purposes. Now, the story, as we continue to move on, it quickly focuses our attention on two women, Naomi and Ruth. And we begin to see uh, deep tragedy and loss and pain. There's just one setback after the other, kind of like we see at the beginning of the story of Job. Here, Naomi is forced to leave her homeland and her husband dies. Hope is gone. Her sons marry Moabite women. Potentially, there's hope gained, but after 10 years, they prove to be barren once again. Hope gone. Then both of her sons die, and she's left with two widows in her house, now utterly hopeless. 
And just so that we have a clear picture and everybody's on the same page, Naomi and Ruth, they have nothing. They have no way to provide for themselves. They have no husband, which in that culture was vital. No children, no sons to carry on the family name. They had no property, which means they had no way to provide for themselves, no way to make money. And this is our first scene. This is the first scene that we see. And it's a necessary scene if, friends, if we're ever going to understand the story of redemption. We have to get this scene. It's one word to describe it. And it is despair. Despair. At the end of chapter 1 and then moving into chapter 2, we should be feeling, as readers of the Bible, we should be feeling despair the hurt, the loneliness with each and every one of these setbacks of Naomi's. And also maybe a little bit like an outsider, like Ruth, a foreigner. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. I think this is a good summary. Naomi said, turn back, daughters. Why will you go with me? Naomi said in her mind that she was going to go back to Bethlehem because she heard that the barley harvest had come. We see that at the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, or actually uh, in verse 6, she heard that uh, God, the Lord had visited his people. And so she was going to go back there and she's pleading with her daughters, turn back, will you go with me? I ha- have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now skip down to verse 13. And, and she, they're saying, yes, we want to go with you. We want to go with you. And she says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then down in verse 20 and 21, uh, as they go, Orpah went back to her people and her gods, and Ruth clung to her and said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stay with you. Your God's going to be my God. And as they enter into Bethlehem in verse 20 and 21, the ladies there are saying, hey, there's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Here, Naomi pleading with her daughters-in-law to leave so that they might avoid what she understands to be a hopeless fate. It is in these pleas that we hear all of Israel's despair. And not only Israel, but all of humanity. And can we blame Naomi for being bitter? Can we blame her for how she feels? Perhaps you are feeling the same way today. Maybe you feel a little bit like Ruth. You feel like an outsider from the promises of God. At this point, the question that seems to be staring us in the face is, does God still care? Does God still care? Does he still care for Naomi, considering the loss of her husband and her sons? Does he still care for the nation of Israel in the middle of three centuries of sinful rebellion? What about me? Does God still care about me? Does God still care in the midst of whatever I'm walking through? The pain and the struggle of this life, does God still care in the midst of my disobedience and my continual sin? What about us at First Baptist? Does God still care? 
We need to not, we don't have to understand completely what these women were going through in this time of history with no opportunities and no hope of provision and a slim chance of survival to say that in our spiritual state, that is, in our moral relationship to a holy God, apart from God's grace, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, this scene of despair is every one of us. This is our story too. Once being full and coming back empty. You see glimpses of Genesis 1 and 2 there? Full and in despair because of the fall and brokenness of sin. Now, I don't want us to miss something here. I don't want us to overlook that while a major part of the story is despair, we also see kindness, human kindness. So friends, during tragedy and brokenness and hurt and devastation, when terrible things happen through terrorists and war and viruses and abuse, and through unemployment, and poor health, and racism, and cultural decay, and personal trial. We would be lying if we didn't acknowledge that our lives are also filled with experiences of kindness. Right? Not by all, not by all people, not always, but often, and by many people. And as Christians, this shouldn't surprise us at all. We know that we are all made in the very image and likeness of God, Christians and non-Christians alike. And regardless of our age and our religion and our education, our nationality, God's image will occasionally show itself. Humanity, although sinfully depraved, still have the capacity to reflect something of God's character. So... Just think of a couple here. If you're in public service, like our Vance pilots and students or a school teacher, those serving in local and state governments, I want you to realize that the need for the gospel, which is what we're all about, the advancement of the gospel, the need for the gospel in no way negates the importance of your work of addressing other human needs. Church, we should thank God for everyone who works for the good of society as a whole. And as a church, we should encourage one another to care for those that are more vulnerable uh, in our congregation, like the Naomi and the Ruths. We can be praying for our deacons who are on the front lines in this effort, but church, let's not leave that ministry to them alone. This act of loving kindness belongs to the entire church body. So let me ask you a question as we think about despair, yet kindness. Amidst the trials that you are presently facing, do you really think God has no plans and purposes for you? Do you really think that he has completed all the work he means to do in your life? Brothers and sisters, God's sovereign in your life. That means he is over and he's in charge. He hasn't turned a blind eye. He knows exactly what he is doing. So let's praise the Lord God of the harvest, the God of the famine as well, whatever season we're walking through. And this brings us to scene two. And we can summarize scene two with just one word as well, and that is provision. God's provision is ultimately displayed here in his loving kindness. 
Notice that as Naomi is complaining in verse 21, the author directs our eyes to to the very next verse in verse 22, which says, barley harvest was beginning. The Lord Almighty says, it says in verse 6, that he visited his people. He has made a way when there seemed to be no way. God has made provision. We see that he provides food in this story. We see that he provides a husband. He provides a child. And looking forward, he provides the king of kings. Chapters 3 and 4 of Ruth explain how long before Ruth and long before you and I that God was planning to make provision. Behind the kindness and generosity of Boaz and the devotion and the hard work of Ruth, we see God at work through the Jewish law. You see, God designed a system for his people that stipulated that some of the harvest should be left for the poor to gather or glean after someone else had cut it. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, if you want to take time to go read that. The law even commands harvesters to, uh, to stop um, reaping in the field. They, they weren't to go all the way to the edge of the field. In our day and age, we're getting ready to start harvest. I don't know if anybody's going to be a part of that. But it would say, hey, this, this last section, don't do that. Don't harvest that part. Let others go through there. This was God's way of providing for the provision for those that are fatherless, the foreigner, and the widows, as though they will have something to gather. We see God also at work in the seasons. Just as Jesus calmed the storm and set everything right, God is working through the seasons to bring Naomi home at just the right time. And it's not like all of a sudden, uh, in Naomi and Ruth's story, God was surprised by the turn of events and had to institute a plan to provide. He had instituted this long before them. Look with me at Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. The author writes, And she happened. I underlined that word. And she happened upon Boaz's field. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then he writes, Behold, the Redeemer just happened to come by. He happened to walk by. He's inviting us to see that there is no such thing as luck that's driving this chain of events. It's part of a divine plan that God is working. Reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God here is revealing to us his providence by establishing the law in such a way that through their obedience to the law, Naomi and Ruth would be rescued from their despair. The New Testament writers pick up on this this language at just the right time, at the appointed time. It so happened that it was going to happen this way. Listen to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 23. Jesus, by Peter's preaching, it says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up at just the right time. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8 says, For while we, while we were still weak, That is, when we were in despair and empty at the right time, it says, Christ died for the ungodly. God is right on time. He never misses a beat. 
in your life and in mine in the grand story of redemption, God is working all things. Ruth entered the field of Boaz and the Redeemer walked by the city gate at the time Boaz planned to be settling the matter. Now let's look at chapter 4 as we see the introduction here of this idea of kinsman-redeemer that foreshadows and points to Christ, our Redeemer. Look at chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off uh, his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chelon and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native people. You are also witnesses this day. So here we see Boaz stepped into the desperation of Ruth and Naomi. Just as our Savior Jesus does. He stepped into. You notice the hint there of the incarnation? Coming down. Coming into the desperation that we see. Jesus took on flesh and blood. And he entered into our hopelessness. Our desperation. This was what Boaz was doing. And it was a must for Boaz. If he was going to redeem, he had to be fully invested And it was a must for Christ, our Redeemer, in order to save. In chapter 3, among the the crafty matchmaking schemes of Naomi to get Boaz to marry Ruth and whatever was going on there in the threshing floor, we notice that in chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth admitting and recognizing that she needs a Redeemer. She says, Boaz, spread your wing over me. In essence, she is saying, protect me, provide for me, let me find my refuge with you. Sound like Psalm 91 to anyone? However, 
Boaz was not the nearest kin. The man, the nearest redeemer in this story doesn't even get named. It's like the author goes at great lengths to make sure we know that. In our vernacular, it would have been something like, oh, it's what's-his-face or so-and-so. Now, don't miss this, that Boaz, as he, he didn't have to step in, did he? Just like this other redeemer, he didn't have to. Nobody forced him. It was by his choice. Boaz willingly and decisively and joyfully intervened. I turn your attention to Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay, my, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And he says this, listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one forced Jesus to do this. He did this of his own accord. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that it was the joy that was set before Jesus. It was the joy of obeying his Father's will, the joy of redeeming his sheep, that he endured the cross and the shame. Friends, do you see a beautiful display of the loving kindness of God in the person of Jesus, the Redeemer? And as much as we see this story as a great love story, and it is, it's also a business transaction. It's also a business transaction. Now that may not sound romantic, but it is beautiful in God's design. The word redeem, which is in this section alone that I just read, or this section here in in chapter 4, we see it six times. It means to buy back whether as a purchase or a ransom. So if we took the time this morning, we would see in the Old Testament a payment for the price of redemption. For animals, example, the firstborn male of all the livestock belonged by right to Yahweh. Donkeys and unclean animals could be redeemed by their owner. And in the case of individual Israelites, each had to pay a ransom for his life at the time of national census. The firstborn sons, uh, who since the Passover belonged to God, and the impoverished Israelites, compelled to sell himself into slavery, could later be set free, either by redeeming himself or being redeemed by a relative. We see this idea of payment over and over. Now, I say all of this to point out that as we see this redeeming of Ruth, we get a picture uh, of what God is doing and his provision It costs something. His provision costs something. Let's look at verses um, 13 through 17 of chapter 4 as we wrap this story up. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The the, The women said to Naomi, blessed Be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. 
And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amazingly, we see Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, Israel's greatest earthly king. And even more, David would be an ancestor and a preview of the king to come, Jesus the Messiah. Friends, you see, God worked through Boaz to redeem not just Ruth and Naomi, but to bring about the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And this cost the Lord. The Bible says that it was through his blood, the one and only Son of God that was slain for us. Grace is not cheap. It's costly to the Lord. It's free. We don't deserve it. But the Lord gave His one and only Son so that we might be redeemed. And Jesus will redeem not only uh, from our earthly worries, but from the most serious worry, the darkness that we all face, the despair that we all face that is being lost in our own sin. As I said earlier, we are made in the image of God, but we are also fallen and have sinned against God. Yet God in His kindness will not leave us in slavery to sin forever. That's good news, church. In His great love, He sent Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and and owing no penalty for His own sins, He died on the cross for whoever will repent of their sins and believe. And in spite of any Moabite-like gods we have served, Jesus died for us if we turn our sin, turn away from our sin and put our trust in Him. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that. When you do, He grants forgiveness from sin and new life in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And He will bring us back and fill us with all that He is for us. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, you remember today, I pray that you remember the kindness of God. If you look at our lives and how we live this last week, you know, just as I do, that we are undeserving of God's grace. And yet, has He not been kind to us? Has He not been good to us? He gives us a Ruth. He gives us a barley harvest. Our sovereign Lord, loving God, provides for his people. So when you're tempted like Naomi to doubt him during bad times, remember this story. Remember that God provides. Mark Dever reminds, God lets us go through trials in order to expose the depths of our need and to show us the fullness of his provision. What a wonderful, wonderful grace of God to allow us to go through trials to expose how much we need the Lord and how he has provided for us, specifically through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, I'm closing here. Do you see the depths of your sin? Do you realize that left to yourself, you'll be lost in sin? If so, then hear the good news of the kinsman redeemer that we all need. The Apostle Peter writes it this way, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but through the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
we hear your word today. We see how you have worked to provide, how you have worked to change, how you have worked to, through all generations. God, this isn't new to you. You are a redeeming God. You are a God that changes hearts and minds for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that again in us, in your people, those of us believing and those who have never believed. Lord, draw them to yourself. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen.